Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. There's no denying we're big fish eaters here in Louisiana. This week, we're celebrating all things pescatarian. We begin with a trip to the Landry family's fishing camp in Port Sulphur. There, we learn the story of Don Landry Sr., founder of Don Seafood, who fried up his first piece of fish over 80 years ago in Lafayette, Louisiana. Then, the fishing fun continues as we explore Louisiana's catch and cook program with Dickie Brennan. Once you catch your fish, his chefs are standing by ready to cook it for you. We'll learn all about how that works, and then Author Paul Greenberg joins us to explore the omega-3 principle. If you're getting your omega-3s from supplements, Paul's got some breaking news you'll want to hear. There's nothing fishy about this week's show. It's all delicious fact on this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Eric Molina is my name. I'm a COO of Don Seafood. My name is Donnie Landry, and I'm the oldest of these guys, and I'm the one of them that put all these guys together. So <laughs> these are th this is that's what I do. I don't have a title. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Mike Landry. Uh, I'm the brains of the organization and the good looks, and that's it. <laughs> I'm Tracy Landry. I'm the vice president and the youngest in the organization. <laughs> but Donnie, the oldest, is the president. He just forgot. <laughs> the Landry family are well into their third generation owning and operating Don's Seafood. And they're showing no signs of slowing down. With restaurants spread across southern Louisiana, Don's has built its reputation on family unity, laboring out of love for the food itself. The Landrys were kind enough to invite our Louisiana Eats crew to their fishing camp in Port Sulphur, where we learned the storied history of Don's seafood. To begin, Donnie explained how his father got the business started in the first place. He borrowed $400 from his uncle to, uh, to start the business, and it was right after Prohibition, so, so it was called Don's Beer Parlor. Don's Beer Parlor, and that right. was in Lafayette, correct? Right. That's right, downtown Lafayette. And it was in the back of his grand, his dad's uh, meat market, which he had the town meat market, and they'd, they'd deliver meat on bicycles back then. They made Ashby a partner, and, then, and, and it became Don Seafood Inn. And then in 1951, our Uncle Willie Landry was, was uh, running the, the grandfather's meat market, and they joined the meat market and the restaurant and made it all one restaurant. And Willie joined 
Don Seafood and Steakhouse, and that's when it was changed to Don Seafood and Steakhouse. Is there anything that was uniquely Don's that grows up from that period of time? We were the first person that ever raised farm-raised crawfish in farms. These guys, the, their fathers had, had their own first crawfish. They called it a crawfish ranch back then, which I always thought was funny. But crawfish ranch they had some of the first catfish ponds in, in, in the state. Um, you know, so a lot of the Louisiana food that you see, the seafood platters, the etouffees, crawfish in general in restaurants, look at Don's and you'll find where it started. There's that great picture, and I don't know who's in the picture, and I'd like to know more about the chicken in a bag. Yeah. The chicken in a bag? Yeah. That was popular, man, because it was like to go. they pick it up to go, you know, and it was just pick up your chicken in a bag. You so know? That was like, that was that was like early neat. Popeye's idea. This was like yeah. the chicken to go. Don's cooked some really good chicken. I bet. We really do. And you still have that chicken on your menus? Yep, yep. We have some chicken. We don't. It's not in a bag anymore. But uh, yeah, we do have a, a great camp. We call it camp chicken on our menu. It's, right, uh, it's right. one of those things that kind of came from the camp. We'd feast on that. He'd bring a big bag we, full of it. We didn't have a lot of. Um, resources at a lot of the camps we were at and we got tired of eating ham sandwiches and eat, living out of an ice chest so we'd bring fried chicken and fried chicken cold was always good so uh so then everybody yeah <laughs> you'd eat it right out of the ice chest you would with a beer you were good to go you know and so it got to be a thing every time we go to camp hey y'all bring some camp chicken bring some camp chicken and we'd fry up a bunch of chicken and put it in the ice chest so that's kind of where that started but um tell me how the restaurants grew right then the shreveport Shreveport stayed there for 42 years, and then another crew went to Beaumont. They must and, miss uh, y'all in right. Texas and North Louisiana we now. they got family, they too. <laughs> they do. They, we got some comments recently about, when y'all coming back to Shreveport? Shreveport? I go to Shreveport every now and then for, for different things, and uh, every time I go there, I know some people there, and they're just begging for Don's. You would not believe. they just they like, well, Don's has got to come back. When we were closing Shreveport, we, we did an ad in the paper and said that Friday and Saturday was our last days. And so they showed up, and, and it was like a funeral. Oh. Families came there, and they were crying. <laughs> My mama, you know, we grew up here with y'all's menu, and y'all can't close it. I think yeah, we had up to up to like sixty or $70,000 people were offering. We'll give y'all money. Here's $10,000. Please don't close it. We grew up here, and you don't realize that, you know, how intimate a restaurant is, you know, over the years. So tell me how you all settle down in these small communities and stay there, because I think that is an interesting and important part of the survival story and mm -hmm. the family story. I think part of it, I know when we opened Hammond is I, my brother and I and my, my father, we just didn't want to move far apart from each other, you know, so you don't go to another place and open, a, you know, another town or city way off because your family was everything. Yeah. You know, that's just, you know, and like I said, we opened in Hammond because it was 30 minutes away from Baton Rouge. So I always tell people that I've never figured out how to run a restaurant without being in it. And I live here. You know, we don't we've always had to be in our restaurants to give it that feeling. You talk about the labor and the different things and the cultures of these restaurants. And when we, we come out of them, you can't hire it done. So, it, you know, we have to we have to be in them. And, and it's. And to keep true and keep that Louisiana feeling and keep that culture, it's, it's kind of hard without us being in them and being part of them. So, you know, we, we, we struggle with that growing versus 
keeping it the way we want to keep it and keeping that pride and keeping that culture in it. We get a little more, you know. So we answer your question. We, I'm not ready to move to another town. <laughs> Nobody else is either is what Mike said. You know, yeah. we, we have one uh, – the, the third and fourth generation members are in the Lafayette restaurant. Donnie's daughter it helps run that restaurant with and, our, and his grandson are both uh, in our management team in that restaurant. So we have third and fourth generations in, in that restaurant. The other restaurants right now, we don't have any other family members, but each each general manager and operating partner in each restaurant started out as a um, entry level either waiter or busboy or cook in our in our restaurant. So everybody that's operating the operating partners have all started as with us with our company and been here since they were basically that's kids. That's how I started like also. Now. <laughs> a long time, and he came back and he said, "I just man, it's just different." You know, he did the corporate thing and. When you, you know, when I say uh, people don't work for me, they work with me, you know, I mean, it's your family. I yeah. mean, that's what you, you know, yeah. you're there, you know, seven days a week, you know, 12 hours a day. You better like the people you with. <laughs> we're, all, we're all trying to make a living. We're yeah. right there with the employees, you know, yeah. we're all trying to make it. That's it. So when we decided to have this conversation today, we're here sitting at this absolutely phenomenal fishing spot. We're down in Port Sulphur, near Lake Hermitage. Tell me about this side of your lives. We love to camp. <laughs> we love going to the camp. Wherever the it's camp so is. It's so peaceful out here. You know, it's, it's nice. You can go fishing. This morning we went fishing, caught about 60 or 70 trout, I guess. We love it down here, man. It's just peaceful. We enjoy it, and, and we've all, with the, the Louisiana lifestyle, just, you know, sportsman's paradise, I, I think, you know, we were, we were looking at the sunrise this morning and, and talking about we got a great life. <laughs> this is this is great. You know, we get to enjoy this and, and do what we do for a living. I so, wouldn't want to do it any other, any other way. way. So. <laughs> the Landry family of Don Seafood at their fishing camp in Port Sulphur, Louisiana. When we come back from a short break, we'll have a visit with author Paul Greenberg, who has just spent three years investigating the history, science, and business of omega-3, the fatty acid once regarded as a miracle compound whose effectiveness is now being called into question. Stay tuned. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph's on the Park, overlooking City Park's ancient oaks. Serving locally sourced Gulf seafood, meats, and farm fresh produce, all presented with a global spin by Chef Chip Flanagan. Lunch, dinner, 
Saturday and Sunday brunch, and private parties at 900 City Park Avenue in Mid-City. My name is Paul Greenberg. Uh, my latest book is The Omega Principle, Seafood and the Quest for a Long Life and a Healthier Planet. After the enormous success of his first award-winning book, Four Fish, Paul Greenberg could have sat on his laurels and rightfully considered himself the alpha among authors who write about oceans and environmental issues. Instead, he decided to focus on the Omega omega-3, that is. As a supplement, the fatty acid has spurred an industry that brought in an estimated $33 billion in 2016. Paul spent three years investigating all things omega-3 and made some surprising discoveries about the highly popular supplement. He recently took some time out to tell us what he found. You know, the central problem of this book was to try to bring this molecule to life, this omega-3. And I realized that the best way to do it was through good characters and strong locations. So like, in, for example, the Amalfi Coast, uh, I went there because it turns out the very, very first omega-3 supplement was actually an ancient Roman fish sauce called garum, which was made from the rotting guts of fish that were caught in the Mediterranean. Um, and I found a little village on the Amalfi Coast called Chitara, where they make the sort of latter-day equivalent of Roman garum. So I went there to see how it was done, see how it was extracted. And it really kind of led me to this fun kind of picaresque journey with this Italian specialty food importer. But it also led me into such a, you know, much more interesting conversations, discussions about the essence of what makes a healthy diet. And, and in fact, the Mediterranean diet, which is the diet that I concluded is one of the healthiest ways to eat. Well, it's so fascinating that, you know, garum, I, I think anybody who has studied cooking certainly knows about garum. And to think that that really was where the concept of reduction began. We've sort of become a republic of reductionism. Yep. Yeah. Well, so when you talk about reduction, what we're really talking about is taking huge amounts of marine life and boiling it down for its essential chemicals. And you're quite right that the, the Roman garum industry did do that with a large amount of fish that would, they would basically uh, not so much boil but ferment down into the garum sauce that they really loved. But in modern day, or, or you could say in, in the last 300 years, the reduction industry has come about for a lot of different purposes. I mean, the first American reduction industry was really directed at whales. You know, we often think about uh, the sort of Melville days of whaling, where we were going after whales for things like lamp oil and lubricants. But there's this whole other reduction industry that gets born in the early 20th century, where whales were being boiled down primarily to make margarine. Um, you know, remember that all. Remember, once upon a time, we all thought margarine was the most healthy thing for our hearts. Yes. Um, well, it turns out if you're older than 60 years old, you quite likely have eaten whale at one point or another from being boiled down from whales into margarine. Nowadays, the reduction industry still exists. In fact, one out of every four pounds of fish caught in the entire world is boiled down 
to make animal feed, to make fertilizer, and most recently, omega-3 supplements. And if you were to take all the fish in the world that are boiled down for reduction, that would be the equivalent of the human weight of the United States boiled down into dust and oil every single year. So how has this happened? How has our human food system turned the land against the sea? Well, it's been a gradual series of steps. Really, the best lens is is the United States, because when we first arrived, we had a country that was basically an omega-3 type country. We had wild game browsing on wild grasses, which produces much higher levels of omega-3s in the meats that we're eating. Um, But we also had abundant seafood, and we had abundant estuaries um, and natural systems that fostered the development and the growth of high omega-3 food. When we started to develop the Great Plains um, and we tore up those big, thick prairies with um, grasses that had root structures sometimes 9 or 10 feet deep, we started to basically upset the ability of the natural world to keep itself in balance. We planted, instead of those native grasses, we put in things like corn and soy, very shallow-rooted crops. We over-fertilized them with nitrate and phosphate fertilizers. Those, in turn, washed down into riverways, um, into our estuaries, caused dead zones, caused the erosion of the coastal floodplain. And so, as a result, now what you have are corn-fed and soy-fed pigs and beef and chicken. You have limited amounts of seafood. And in fact, we've gone from an omega-3-based world into an omega-6-based world. Omega-6 is also an essential fatty acid, but it tends to come to us from all these industrial food sources like corn and um, uh, corn-raised beef, um, soy, those kinds of things. And just to take a step back from a human health perspective, omega-6s and omega-3s are both essential for human health, but... In Paleolithic times, they probably would have had a ratio of about 1 to 1. Now we're looking at a ratio of about um, 20 to 1, omega-6 to omega-3. And there are a lot of epidemiologists and dietary people out there who say that that leads us down the pathway of inflammation, which in turn causes all sorts of other deleterious effects on your health, cardiovascular disease, neurological diseases. So it's a very interesting way to kind of look at how our food systems have changed and why we're getting unhealthy because of it. My goodness, then, in in your story, you you take us to Peru and introduce us to an enchiveta. The Peruvian enchiveta, yeah. So that actually, again, another sort of invisible creature, which is really key to the way that ecosystems and also food systems work. So the Peruvian enchiveta is the largest fishery in the entire world. And on some years, it represents as much as 10% of all fish caught. Um, It's a little silvery fish. It's just as delicious as any anchovy. You can put it on a pizza. But in Peru, something like 99% of it gets boiled down into fish meal and to fish oil that's used for industrial purposes. Probably the most common use of it now is for aquafeed, for growing things like salmon. Um, But what's also interesting and what's, I think, particularly relevant to folks in Louisiana is that the Enchiveta story kind of feeds into a reduction fishery that's happening right there in Louisiana, which is the Menhaden fishery. You often call them pogies down there. But, you know, there's this tremendously large fishery uh, in the Gulf of Mexico for a silvery fish called a Menhaden. Again, 90% of it is is used for reduction. Some of it is used for bait. None of it is eaten by humans. Um, And it's a key, key component of the Gulf ecosystem. If you take Menhaden out of the picture, if you over-harvest them, there's no way for the energy that's gathered by plankton to pass on to larger fish. It's those menhaden, those little silvery fish like anchoveta as well, that are in between plankton and larger carnivores that 
make marine ecosystems work. And I think, you know, the fact that these little fish are often invisible to the average consumer it was one of the motivating factors in causing me to write this book in the first place. And of course, all of this is going on because somehow people have been convinced that they can take a pill that will give them the magic omega-3s. And we're kind of at a turning point with that, aren't we? Yeah, well, the original thing that got people excited about omega-3s, particularly in supplement form, was the finding based on some original research done in the 1970s around Greenland Inuit, where they found that Inuit people who consumed large amounts of fatty marine mammals and, and fatty fish had very low levels of cardiovascular disease. That's what is called in science an observational study. In other words, you're, you're, you're seeing a correlation between two things, but you're not necessarily seeing a causation. Um, what we're seeing in the last few years is some very, very large studies that have been published about omega-3 supplements that are what are called randomized control trials, where you're actually measuring effect of a pill on a particular health outcome. And most recently, Cochrane, um, which is a uh, sort of a public service health organization, did a meta-analysis that included over 114,000 subjects, and they found no effect on cardiovascular disease if people are given an omega-3 supplement. So from that point of view, the central hypothesis that omega-3s help your heart, that is starting to fall apart underneath scientific scrutiny. And it does bring into question, well, is this reduction industry even necessary? So it, it, it certainly, I think, is, I mean, I was lucky in that. I think it helped, <laughs> it helped get the word out about this book, um, that those studies would be coming to fruition even as we speak or as the book was coming to press. But there are more studies to come, and I'm going to keep my eye on them as the next months proceed. Because we're hoping that it's working maybe at least on our neurological systems, right? So maybe yeah, it's not yeah, our I mean, heart. And, and that's the thing. You know, I'm sure listeners have heard these stories about omega, you know, fish oil not helping the heart. But it's also important to remember that the omega-3 fatty acids are very central to the central nervous system. Um, something like 10% of our brains by weight is DHA omega-3 fatty acid. So there is some evidence out there that by taking omega-3 fatty acids, we might be increasing the speed of our brain, the overall health of our nerve cells. But, you know, what I'm really looking, I've got my eye on a big study that's coming out of Brigham Women's Hospital in November called the VITAL study. And that's one of the largest randomized control trials ever done on omega-3 fatty acids. That will be coming out in November. And I've got my eye on that one, hoping to see some effect. If there's no effect from that study, then I think we really need to reconsider everything that we've heard about omega-3s and whether or not they work in supplement form. You actually included recipes because <laughs> we need to get our omega-3s from food if we need to yeah. eat it, right? We do. And, you know, whether or not it's the omega-3 itself that is causing fish eaters to be healthier than non-fish eaters, um, I don't think we 100% know that. But we do know that when we look at large association studies of dietary patterns, that a pescatarian diet tends to show lower all-cause mortality and overall decrease in chronic diseases. So I'm not necessarily advocating that everyone go on an all-fish diet. But I do think we could lower the amount of terrestrial meat that we're eating um, and try to get two portions a week of nice oily fish or shellfish, things like mussels, for example, are excellent sources of omega-3s. But it's not just the omega-3s. 
Seafood, generally speaking, is a much more efficient deliverer of vital nutrients like protein at a much lower calorie cost. So if we can keep that in mind and if we can eat healthy seafood that fulfills a lot of different nutrient requirements of the human body, I think we will end up healthier overall. Paul Greenberg, author of The Omega Principle, Seafood and the Quest for a Long Life and Healthier Planet. Now that Paul Greenberg has shed light on the truth about omega-3 supplements, what fish should you eat for your brain and heart health? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? If you enjoyed hearing the Landry family tell their story at the start of the show, be sure to check out our extended podcast. Don, Tracy and Mike Landry spill the beans on everything from fish frying to their crawfish boiling secrets. Just visit poppytooker.com to subscribe. And while you're there, check out Don Seafood's new video series. It's all real Louisiana Eats. Culinary Quiz Question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What fish should you eat for your brain and heart health? Well, Paul Greenberg mentioned anchovies, but I know just the thought of those bony canned creatures strike terror into the hearts of many. Number one on most lists is the delectable fish, salmon. That high-quality protein boasts a variety of nutrients, including large amounts of magnesium, potassium, selenium, and B vitamins, along with 4,023 milligrams of omega-3 per serving. My goodness, that lovely pink fish packs a punch. I'll be getting more than my fair share this month when I judge the three finalists in this year's International Aura King Salmon Competition. Over the next month, I'll be visiting the three finalists to determine the winning dish, scheduled to be announced on October 16th in Nelson, New Zealand, home to Aura King's Sustainable Fishery. My travels will take me to the kitchen doors of Yale Pete, Chef at Carisu in Brooklyn, Mia Lee, 
of Lenoir in Austin and Jonathan Granada of Otium in Los Angeles. But don't worry, I'll be sharing the entire experience with you all soon on an upcoming Louisiana Eats episode airing later this fall. Now let's get local with our fish eating and catching as we take a trip down to Barataria Bay with my friend, restaurateur, and all-around Louisiana sportsman, Dickie Brennan. It was still pitch dark outside when I joined Dickie Brennan and his chefs gathered in the Canal Street kitchen of the Palace Cafe, drinking coffee, trying to wake up. Without a moment to waste, we piled into two big SUVs for a trip to Captain Tofield Bourgeois' dock. Once there, the group split up amongst the many boats in Captain Tofield's fleet and headed out to the open waters just as the sun began to rise. I was lucky enough to be on board Captain Tofield's charter boat with Dickie Brennan and executive chef Gus Martin. All right, I'm Chef Gus Martin with uh, Dickie Brennan and Company out here uh, doing some, uh, some early morning fishing. <laughs> Today we're fishing, we're not catching yet. With great excitement, Gus reeled in the first catch of the day. A great-looking speckled trout. I tell you, I just, just bringing it back in and I just hit it soft, you know. So. But Dickie's first trout was close behind. Soon, we could hear calls from the other boats as they began catching fish, too. Some additional trout joined the others still flapping in the ice chest. And then I experienced a real first. I caught a great big bright green big mouth bass. Yeah, swimming alongside trout normally caught in salt water were bass, a species I'd never caught before and that I'd always associated with freshwater fishing. <laughs> well, that's salt water diversion for you, my friends. Our captain, Tophiel Bourgeois, is a lifelong Louisiana fisherman who navigated the waters, taking us to spots he knew were likely to produce. Given our quick success, it was obvious that Captain Tophiel's 25 years of charter fishing out of Lafitte had been time well spent. Bourgeois' fishing charters, Tophiel's business, is one of the most lauded in South Louisiana. Okay, Captain Tofield Bourgeois, uh, located down in Barataria, Louisiana. And if you're wondering when you listen to my voice, I do have a face for radio, so you don't want to see what I look like. <laughs> well, with a name like Tofield Bourgeois, probably not from Chicago. I'm probably not from Indiana. So uh, no doubt born and raised down here in the bayou. You know, the school I graduated from had 22 kids. Actually, 19 of them still live on the bayou, so which is unique, and that's been over 30 years ago. 
But no doubt, man, I've been fishing professionally for 24 years. You know, we do fishing by boats. Actually, right now, on, on um, say, on the whole Gulf Coast, I'm the only one that flies seaplanes out to Chandler Islands. And what we do is we, uh, we target trophy fish. So if you have a bucket list, you want to come out, you want to fly seaplanes, go wade fishing out in the Gulf of Mexico to the Chandler Islands. I call it the Cajun Bahamas. You know, because I'm out there, we're 32 miles from any shoreline. We very seldom see people, and it's all by plane. So we fly down the coastline, check out the water, actually can see the fish by air, and pretty much land and catch them up. And that's kind of what we do, man. So right now, 52 years old, figuring I probably got another 30 years of doing this. <laughs> people come from out of town and go fishing with you. Where do they come from, for instance? I fish people all over the world. So, I mean, I have actually a world map in my foyer in my lodge, and I actually let people pin their states and countries as they come here, which is pretty cool. So right now, what we're getting ready to do, we're getting ready to write a book. And the book is going to be is Fishing Tales of a Louisiana Cajun Charter Boat Fisherman. I'm never surprised. I've seen people naked that should have been naked. I've seen, I've seen drugs that shouldn't have been on a boat. I've seen people get drunk, fall asleep, fall out the boat, and fall in the boat. You know, so I mean, there's not much we haven't experienced down here in the bayou. Now today, you know, we have you know, Chef Dickie Brennan with us and um, his head chef Gus with us, taking them out their natural element, because their day consists of probably getting up like me, four o'clock in the morning, but they walking through their coolers, they're looking at product, looking at what, you know, we've got to sell, 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 to make quotas and, you know, sell, sell the plates. Um, so today we turn that around for them. So today we, they come down to the bayou to me, I cooked them pancakes with some blueberries in it this morning with a little strawberry and a cool whip on the side. That's the extent of my little, my little deal for them. But you, yeah, we brought them out on the bayou and we you know, caught some nice redfish, caught some speckled trout. Now the key thing about what we're talking about today is uh, you know, it's really unique to come to Southeast Louisiana to be able to come fishing and join, say, the sportsman's paradise. Tofield's friend Dickie has long been on board with the new Louisiana's Catch and Cook program. In fact, all his restaurants participate. The way the program works, a charter fishing group can bring their catch to a participating restaurant where the chef will prepare their fresh-caught fish to order. Dickie, this fishing concept is such a great idea for locals and visitors alike. Tell me how you and your restaurants came to be involved and how it works with the Dickie Brennan restaurants when you want to catch and cook. I guess the state came up with the regulations to where you can legally cook what you harvest as a sports fisherman in a New Orleans restaurant. You know, we did this regulation a couple of years ago, and I happened to be on a fishing trip with a, one of the local fishing guides, and like in the middle of it, all of a sudden I was like, you know, hey, have, have you turned any of your customers on to go into a restaurant to letting a chef cook? And the guy's like, you know, I just, I, I never think to do it. I always forget about it. So the next night, he's like calling saying, let's do it. And so we did like five of them in a row. And, I mean, even one night we are busy in the restaurant. We put the guys in the kitchen, did a chef's table in the kitchen with them. And it's like a, a tasting menu, but, you know, with this beautiful, fresh, caught Louisiana seafood. And that's what one of the greatest things about living in Louisiana is, our back door is the Mouth Mississippi River. It's the most fertile fish grounds in the world. We have the most beautiful seafood. We get to enjoy it, and there's nothing better than eating fresh seafood. Gus, since I have the pleasure of having you all here with me, what's it like 
on an evening when some fisherman calls up and says, Hey, I'm coming in with my fish. Well, it's exciting for us. We want people to enjoy themselves. We're in the hospitality industry. We want, you know, give them a, a total great experience. You know, we, we, the chefs and myself, we have a great time with it. It's really, it's fun. It's unique. Uh, it, it challenges our chefs to get a little more creative on the creative side. And it's all about making our, our guests happy. A lot of the local fishermen, when they come in, the fish that we've seen is a lot of redfish, a lot of drum, a little bit of sheephead, some yellowfin tuna. Those are pretty much the fish that they've brought in to us to play around with, you know. And every fish species of fish they bring in, we, we create a new special for them for that night. You know, we deal with the local farmers, so what we do is we tie in a lot of our dishes with local ingredients from Louisiana. And it's just, when people come down here, it's, it's a joy and a pleasure to present something that they can't get really back home. It's a win-win. Uh, you take somebody from out of town that's coming in town to fish with a licensed fishing guide for two or three days. Typically, they spend a night in downtown New Orleans, enjoying New Orleans, either coming and going from their fishing excursion. So, you know, it's, it's a great thing for the restaurants. It's a great thing for the consumer, the diner. I mean, I've grown up my entire life where, I mean, just to... To drive down in the morning or to wake up at a fishing camp, watch the sunrise, get out on the boat, you know, go catch some fish. And then to be able to cook with your family, your friends, enjoy it. I mean, you know, we always say that's what's living in New Orleans is all about. It's one of it's one of the wonderful things that that we have available for us that most people will never be able to experience. Well, that's absolutely the truth. And Gus, I happen to know that you and Dickie have known each other since you were both in high school. Is fishing something that you all have done together in the past? Well, I haven't done a lot of fishing with Dickie, but, you know, I've done a lot of fishing, you know. We catch up, we talk food all the time, but, you know, we'll, uh, we'll get out there and do some fishing. Uh, you, know, I'm, you know, this is a, a great time we had today, and uh, we'll, I'm, I'm sure we'll have more trips lined up. Hopefully now that we're older, we have some time where we can go do some fishing. (laughs) When we returned to the dock and compared our haul, it was evident that the night's dinner was guaranteed to be a feast. As the crew cleaned the fish on the dock, the chefs began to flesh out ideas about how they'd like to prepare the day's bounty. Needless to say, I needed some serious sprucing up before dinner, so I headed home and sent producer Joe Schreiner downtown to the Tableau kitchen so we wouldn't have to miss a minute of the action. We all work in the Tableau submarine. All right, hipster, how are you? I'm John, welcome to Tableau. Chef Gus is the person that you want to talk to right now. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and take over chopping onions for him, and you're going to talk to him real quickly. Gus Martin, how you doing? All right, I'm great. How long have you been preparing everything? Uh, we've been we're working from 4:30 to right now, so we're um, we're a little under the gun today. But uh, it's 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 a good challenge, and uh, I know we got a great group of people. We all went out fishing this morning, so we got a great group of people coming in. We're gonna sort of do like our meals tonight are gonna be uh, like family style. So we have two tables, so I think that's good. Well, I think we're close on it, you know, so we're going to try to make them happy, you know, and that's what it's about. I think this program is uh, really taking off, and uh, the, the whole thing, like I was telling uh, Poppy and Dickie, you know, it's 
it's us interacting with the with, with the fishermen you know because you know a lot of people have restrictions now too you know so you know so and when you know you sit down there and you have good conversation and they bring their catch in and we start talking and we start you know we talk about restrictions they have if they have any if not you know that that's when my chefs have a good time and making some great dishes for them you know so but uh, we're we're all about uh, taking care of the people, and I th I think it's just a it's a gr it's a great way to go spend a day fishing and then go and have some fun with friends and family, you know. So we're excited to have some uh, some fun tonight, you know, and uh, looking forward to doing. The, well, I got a good team here right now, so we're gonna we're, we're basically we're trying to fine tune a couple things, and then we're gonna move forward, you know. As we sat down to dine. Executive chef Gus Martin took a moment to speak about the evening's menu, which included largemouth bass, black drum, speckled trout, and redfish. The chef served the fish raw, seared, stuffed, and baked whole in a salt crust. My favorite part was watching Dickie break through the salt crust the big redfish had been baked in expertly removing pieces of filet, saucing them with a traditional red creole gravy, and serving up a perfect rendition of redfish cubion. As we parted after the long day, we'd made new friends and had fabulous new fishing tales for the telling. Interested in some fun like this of your own? Have Captain Tofiel help you catch your fish and make your dinner reservations, too. You can find him at neworleansfishing.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. on the bayou in Lafouche Parish, Louisiana, Lance Nasio followed in the footsteps of his ancestors. Those footsteps led him right off the end of the dock and onto the deck of a shrimp boat. After more than 20 years as the captain of his own vessel, the Anna Marie, Lance has seen firsthand the effects of erosion, oil spills, and storms on our coastline. We talked with Lance about how he's using innovation to fight back against the many setbacks that all too often beset our Gulf fishermen. My name is Lance Nasio. I'm owner and operator of Anna Marie Seafood. I have two shrimp boats, and we produce some good quality Louisiana shrimp. Yeah, I mean, I've always grown up living off of the land. I, I, you know, lived in a trapping camp when I was a kid. I took a boat to school, to, per se, you know. So, I mean, I know it uh, inside and out. Uh, my father and my grandfather, I mean, I have great respect for them because they were men of not much knowledge but ton of resources. You know, they, they used their hands to make a living from the land. They used what Mother Nature had to offer and, and made a good living out of it. And, and that's what I respect. You know, I, I was brought up doing just about anything, pulling just about anything we can from the water, you know, changing with the season. So, you know, that's how I learned a lot about the ecosystem and the estuaries of South Louisiana is, is by firsthand experience growing up doing it. I'm only 45 years old, but I've seen a tremendous amount of changes with coastal erosion and uh, subsidence and land loss. You know, 
in the wetlands. The practices that you um, enforce on board are really at the cutting edge of shrimping. Explain why you don't, for instance, use any TSP. What What is TSP and why is that never on board any of your ships? Okay. Uh, I think what you're talking about is tripolyphosphate. But what we do is we, uh, first off, when, when we're out shrimping, we use all types of uh, gear to reduce or eliminate any kinds of bycatch. We pull turtle excluders. We pull bycatch reduction devices. So firsthand, when we're out there, uh, we're just trying to target and catch shrimp. And then, you know, also what we do is once we harvest the shrimp, bring them aboard, we sort them by size, we chill them in refrigerated seawater, and we package them and and plate freeze them at 40 below zero. So we package the product once it's been pre-chilled, and we put them on these plates, and the contact surface of these plates is 50 below zero. So what we're doing is we're capturing that out-of-the-water quality. So we can send this shrimp to a chef in New York, and he's going to have the same quality as if he pulled it out the water himself. And what happens if you go the chemical route? Well, I mean, you can cheat a little, you know, but I mean, you don't have the taste and texture and flavor, you know, as you would. And that's my whole thing is, you know, I want someone in another state, another country to experience what I get to eat on a daily basis. As a home user of shrimp, explain to people what shadow packing means. Uh, shadow pack is just a term, you know, uh, these shrimp, we we plate freeze them in 20 pound boxes and they call it shatter because you can break them apart. You can take individual shrimp out of the box and you know, uh, it works very well. Uh, there's no brine. There's no chemicals, no preservatives. So this shrimp, when you thaw it and, and work with it, I mean, it's literally like it just came out of the water. In your work as what truly is a leader of this particular industry, how have you seen your fellow shrimpers react and follow along? I've been fishing for about 20 years, and uh, about 10 years ago, I started plate freezing. And the first few years, people thought I was crazy. In the last two or three years, everybody's trying to jump on board. So we have several other fishermen that are starting to use the technology we're doing. How much does it cost to outfit a shrimp boat with that sort of equipment? Probably right now they got the cost down to forty or fifty thousand, you know. But when I did it, it was probably seventy or eighty thousand because it was a lot of learning. I mean, we bought things and did things that that really we didn't have to go that far along. And and you know the technology's come a ways, and it's about half of what it costs now to do than when I did it. I have to ask you, what is your favorite way to eat shrimp? Uh, you know, one of my favorite ways of to eating shrimp is uh, fried soft-shelled shrimp is one of my favorites. Let's talk about soft-shell shrimp. What are they? Well, soft-shelled shrimp is like any other crustacean. It has to molt in order to grow. And what we do is we sort them out when we're sorting shrimp. We'll take out the soft shells, chill them in seawater, refrigerated seawater, and plate freeze them. And, and then we have it to offer. And you know, I have a lot of local support with these soft-shelled shrimp. It used to be that soft-shell shrimp was a big secret that only the captain knew about, right? Well, that's right, yeah. It was mostly what the fishermen kept for themselves, you know, and, and what we've been able to do with this freezer and packaging is, is bring it out to other folks. What's the best part of being a fisherman? 
the best part is, you know, when you pull that net up and you open that bag up, it's like Christmas, you know. You don't know what bounty you're going to get from it. And another part is, you know, the beautiful sunrises and sunsets and, you know, the idea that you out there creating your own destiny. That's the best part of it. And the flip side of the coin? There's no flip side. <laughs> I love you, Lance. That's great. Thank you so much for coming to see us at Louisiana Eats. Well, thank you, Poppy. Lance Nasio of Anna Marie Seafood. week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can hear our new Quick Bites podcast and also pre-order my latest book, The Pascal's Minnelli Cookbook, debuting this fall. If you've missed an episode of Louisiana Eats, you can hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, and from Don's Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don's Seafood in Lafayette, Gonzales, Denham Springs, Hammond, Covington, or Metairie. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from the Bourbon House. From oysters to redfish, serving fresh Gulf seafood and American whiskey on Bourbon Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch in the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to producers Joe Schreiner, Sarah Holtz, and Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Don't forget to find our recipes and see what we're up to at poppytooker.com. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.